to this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I begin a discussion series that I'm going to be having with Chris Date of Rethinking Hell and allow him the opportunity to lay out his view on hell, uh, which is known as annihilationism or conditionalism or conditional immortality. Now, for those of you who listen to this and think that I go a little easy on Chris in this episode, well, Not only is there really no virtue in being unnecessarily hard on him, uh, but also this is only part one. This episode is meant to introduce us to his views, and part two and possibly part three, if there is one, will be where Chris uh, has been really kind enough to allow me to put him in the hot seat and turn the screws a bit more. So let me also make a pitch to those unbelievers listening or to those who listen more for the usual apologetics nature of the show, that while this will largely be an in-house theological debate, there will be an episode at the end talking about the ramifications of this for the Christian worldview uh, and for apologetics and handling some of the typical objections to Christianity. And so I hope you'll find that episode enriching. But you'll likely need to familiarize yourself with the content of these episodes. Now, speaking of content, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other subjects that we discuss on the Freed Thinker podcast, please consider partnering with us by clicking on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding us on Patreon. If you aren't about uh, or aren't able to support the show financially, please head over to iTunes and give the show a rating and a review. The more top ratings, the better we show in search results. Uh, I'd like to thank those who have donated to us so far. We've been able to do some updates as well as purchase some extra uh, update storage, uh, which has been causing some limited prior release uh, schedules. So also, uh, I'd like to give a shout out and thank you to Matthew Z, Texan 8, Beirut, and Lucas Church Media for your recent iTunes reviews. I I really do appreciate those uh, and cherish your feedback. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Chris, he is a well-known evangelical Christian author, editor, and speaker, as well as a popular blogger, debater, and host of events and podcasts. Representing a global movement known as Rethinking Hell, he specializes in the area of hell and conditional immortality. As an expert on these topics, Chris has been interviewed in such secular media outlets as the New York Times and the National Geographic. He's participated in debates with the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Albert Moeller, uh, as well as others, and he's been interviewed for a popular one-minute apologist video series. He's also been uh, asked to help to frame the statement of evangelical conditionalism, and he's passionate about making the case for conditionalism while fostering unity among evangelical Christians on this controversial but very important topic. Uh, 
In a few short years, Chris has edited or co-authored two books on the area. Uh, he co-authored or co-edited one with uh, Anderson called Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, published by, uh, by Cascade Books, and then also uh, co-edited uh, with Highfield, uh, a book called The Cons uh, Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge, put out by Pickwick Publications. So with that, let's start our discussion with Chris Date on the nature of hell and the eternal state. Enjoy the show. All right, so Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the Freed Thinker podcast. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, good. Well, I've been a I've been a fan of um, uh, of you for for a while. I, I, I've made it known that um, you are you are I think one of the the best debaters um, that that I've that I've heard out there, and uh, <laughs> one of the only ones that that I that I was like, well, I don't know if I actually want to want to debate him or not. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, we, we structured this a little bit more as a, a dialogue uh, because I, I have no doubt that uh, you, you would, you would emerge uh, quite victorious. So, uh, but I've been, I've been a fan of, um, of your work, even though, even though we disagree, I, I you know, just, I, I followed um, your debates and, and your publications uh, with, with some interest. So I'm really, I'm really glad you've been able to come on. Well, that's uh, a real honor. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Good. Um, so I wanted to get I wanted to get started. Um, some some of people might be familiar with um, why you're on the show, and some people might be like, "Nile, what?" <laughs> um, so why don't you start off um, just really quickly explaining what what is annihilationism and what is conditional uh, immortality, and is there overlap differences are they just two terms for the same thing and kind of and, and just kind of hash that out for us uh, sure before i do that though i, I think it's important and, and helpful to first explain for those people who may not have really thought through carefully what it is that they believe uh what it is that the traditional view is um because you know we, we tend to think of it as eternal torment full stop and then we don't really put any flesh on those bones but uh speaking of flesh on the bones it's, it's important that we recognize that the traditional doctrine of hell has been one in which the lost are resurrected uh, along with the saved and both both groups, both saved and lost, historically Christians have said, uh, will be made immortal, the, the righteous immortal so that they can inherit the kingdom of God and live forever in the new heaven, new earth, in the presence of God and in the community of his people, uh, and the wicked immortal bodily so that they can suffer physical and psychological and spiritual and emotional torment for eternity in embodied, you know, as embodied souls. So uh, the reason I want to just stress that right off the bat is because sometimes this this 
this discussion um, focuses on the nature and the immortality or lack thereof of the soul. And while that's an important aspect to this discussion, um, that's not enough of the discussion because we're also dealing with uh, the, the nature of resurrected human bodies of the lost. And so I just wanted to get that out of the way uh, to, so that I can contrast it with what conditional immortality and annihilationism are. Let me start with conditional immortality first. Um, it, it's, it's what it sounds like. It means that immortality is conditioned. Um, so unlike the traditional view, uh, according to which you know, historically Christians have said that everybody will be given bodily immortality, conditional immortality says that no, only the saved will be given immortality when they are resurrected. The lost will be resurrected as well, but they will remain mortal. Uh, and being mortal, they will perish, uh, being sentenced to death. And that's where the annihilationism part of the equation comes in. Um, I don't mind being called an annihilationist. I don't mind my view being called annihilationism. But the reason why I don't, um, I'm not an enormous fan of it is because that's a small part of a much bigger picture, the, the bigger picture being conditional immortality. My view, conditionalism, uh, is short for conditional immortality, is a much bigger view. It's about the nature of life and of immortality and who, who it is that's going to receive that and who it is that won't and what will happen to those who will and what will happen to those who won't and so forth. Annihilationism is like a little part of that puzzle. Right? It's, it's specifically what happens to those people who don't meet the condition uh, required in order to receive immortality, that condition being salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So annihilationism – and the reason why – there are a couple of reasons why that fate, this final death, this final destruction of the lost is called annihilationism. One of them is simply because often traditionalists won't let us use the language that we think – correctly distinguishes these two views, uh, eternal torment and, and annihilationism. Um, we want to say that only the lost, or only the saved will live forever, and the lost will instead die, perish, be destroyed. They will, they will remain mortal and die. But traditionalists, historically, um, I would argue, sort of give these words, life and death and immortality, meanings that you can't find, first of all, in Scripture, but second of all, are totally different from the meanings that we imbue those words with whenever we use them in, modern, in, in normal conversation. Um, and so in order to distinguish between our views, sometimes we have to use the term annihilationism just so people know what it is that we're talking about, since they want to also claim that they think the lost will die and won't live forever when I would argue that they do. The other reason why it's called annihilationism is because if, if something like a substance dualism is true when it comes to the nature of human beings, that is, if human beings have both a material body and an immaterial soul, uh, conditionalists who are dualists would uh, would say that the souls of the of human beings continue to subsist consciously in the afterlife between the first death and resurrection, but at uh, but at the judgment, the both the bodies and the souls of the lost will be destroyed, and so it's a whole being destruction, uh, and that's the other reason why um, this fate that awaits that we think awaits the lost is called annihilation, is because the entire person will be destroyed and, di and will die, not just their bodies. So that's, I know I've spoken for a long time, but that's, that's really the difference, is that the, the doctrine of eternal torment uh, is, is like an everlasting prison sentence. Uh, the doctrine of annihilationism as a small part of a bigger picture that is conditional immortality is like a capital punishment, an execution uh, in, in very literal terms. It's not even an analogy. That's literally what something like Sodom and Gomorrah is, and, and that'll something... Uh, or was, and that's something that maybe we'll discuss in the course of the conversation today. So I don't know. Does that answer? Does that get us off to a good start? Yeah, and 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 you know, I have some questions for you um, in a in a 
kind of in the in the progress that we go about because you you mentioned you know substance dualism and the intermediate state which is that period between between the two comings um, because I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in um, for for those who are who are more critical of your view um, because they they tend to hear. Um, what might be even the predominant view among annihilationists, um, and they confuse what may be a predominant view with what is a necessary entailment of the view. Mm. Um, and and I, I think one of the points of this, even even though you and I, at the end of the day, disagree in the next episode, um, that disagreement is going to come out probably in a much uh, more uh, clear way. Um, I mean, one of the points of this is is to is to give you the platform to help clear up. Um, uh, some of those common misconceptions, and I and 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 I, I think I would like to hear a little bit more, uh, if if you can, on what what are what are some of the different um, the different options available to um, an annihilationist or or a conditionalist with regard to um, the the intermediate state. Um, or with substance dualism and physicalism. I mean, I mean do, does annihilationism or conditionalism does it entail? Do you do you have to hold necessarily as part of the system a specific view about those concepts? I don't think one does, and and I've actively argued against the notion that that it does. I've got an article at Rethinking Health, for example, arguing that uh, conditionalist understanding of final punishment is more consistent with the atonement, even if uh, substance dualism is true. So no, I don't think that one entails the other. Um, but you know, I'm one voice amongst many on both sides of the debate, and so you might find other people disagreeing with me. I, I like what you said a moment ago that you know it, it may in fact be that the that the you know, lion's share of conditionalists or of annihilationists are physicalists or believe in some sort of soul sleep. And I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Um, but I suspect that the reason why that is, if it is, is because you've got whole denominations and whole cults that believe in something like we do. You've got the cults that are the Jehovah's Wit- or that is the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. And as a whole you know, denomination, and I don't even like that word because I don't think they're Christian, but you know what I mean. Yeah. As a whole organization, a whole religion, they believe not only in annihilation, but they also believe in some sort of soul sleep or physicalism or whatever. And then inside the boundaries of Christianity, but still sort of questionable or, uh, or you know, well, I'll just say questionable. You've got the Seventh-day Adventists, and a little less questionable than that, I think, you've got the Advent Christians. And those two denominations of Christianity, as denominations, believe in both annihilationism and some sort of soul sleep. And, and you know, if you, were to, if you take aside, if you put aside denominational, uh, you know, uh, commitments, and you just look at what your average ordinary evangelical conditionalist uh, or annihilationist believes, I think that you'll find a much a much greater degree of diversity. Right. So, so, so to answer your question, what 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 are the range of options when it comes to the intermediate state that that are available to uh, evangelical conditionalists or annihilationists? You've got you've got. On one end, you know, one extreme end of the spectrum, you've got something like a very classic Cartesian dualism where uh, the human soul um, is the real you, you know, the real person, the, the real identity of a person, and the body is kind of like a suit. You know, I, I'm, I'm being a little cheeky here, but that is, but that is kind of what right. Cartesian dualism is, right? So, um, it's, a, it's, so a little, it's a little ghost in the machine-ish. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so on that end of the spectrum, you have that view. And so a Cartesian conditionalist, a Cartesian dualist conditionalist might say that in the first death, the, the body dies and the Cartesian, you know, the, the, the soul is separated from the body and remains conscious in, in Hades or, uh, or, or heaven, you know, um, you know, we could get into we could get into specifics about whether Hades has multiple compartments in it or whether the saved go to heaven and the lost go to Hades or whatever. But but the point is, is that according to this view, uh, human immaterial souls, which are the real you, go on to uh, exist consciously in bliss or in, or in some sort of torment, awaiting the future resurrection of the body, at which point the soul will be reunited with it. If you move a little bit more uh, away from that extreme end of the spectrum, you have something more like a um, – uh, what some people have called like a biblical holism, and I don't mean W-H-O, I mean H-O-L-I-S-M, holism, um, where they would say that while human beings do have an immaterial component to their being that remains conscious in death, that that disembodied um, conscious existence between death and resurrection is, is sort of subhuman. Right. It's um, I, I find it interesting if, if, if we take a, a very literal reading of Jesus story of Lazarus and the rich man, for example, it's interesting that G, the Lazarus is described as being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And so far as I can tell, and I'm not trying to make an argument here, I'm just noting an interesting observation. It's interesting to me that this idea of being comforted tends to tends to have to do with you know being trying somebody trying to calm you down or comfort you in the midst of grief or 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 of suffering and um and it seems to me that you know no matter whether one is a physicalist or whether one is a, is this kind of biblical holist dual, uh, dualist the a human being is not intended to be just a disembodied soul a human being is supposed to be a unity of body and soul, and so if the body dies and the soul subsists in some sort of conscious state, that's that's not entirely human. And 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 people are longing, waiting for, uh, looking forward to the day when they will be reunited with their bo- resurrected bodies, um, at which point they'll be a whole entire human being again. Um, so anyway, that that would be some sort of a biblical holism. The idea being that the Bible says human beings are body and soul, not just soul inhabiting a body. Right. Uh, you move a little bit more into the other end of the spectrum, and you might get into some kind of soul sleep, which affirms, nevertheless, some sort of substance dualism. Uh, so somebody that would say that human beings, yes, they do have some sort of immaterial uh, soul that can be separated from the body, they would say that it sleeps. It's, it's unconscious between death and resurrection, um, even though that immaterial part of the human being exists and then at the and you know at the extreme end of the other spectrum or sorry at the other extreme end of the spectrum you have somebody like me um who would be called a non-reductive physicalist um we believe that the mind of a human being is sort of the product of the brain and if the brain ceases to function then the mind ceases to function and as such a person is uh unconscious until they are resurrected uh you know at, at, at on the final day um, and, and it's called non-reductive physicalism because the idea is that the mind is not purely the unidirectional product of the firing of the neurons in the brain. The mind is actually able to reciprocate, you know, it's able reciprocally to uh, to cause effects in the brain. So the brain has effects in the mind, the mind has effects on the brain, uh, and that and that is what can account for things like will, you know, um, decisions and things. It, 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 we're not pure um you know meat robots which would be some sort of a right. some sort of a atheistic uh, reductive physicalism so you've got a range of views but i would argue and, and you're certainly welcome to probe i would argue that 
any place along this, this spectrum of human nature and, and intermediate state that one falls along, uh, conditionalism is still perfectly compatible with it, and I would argue still more consistent with the biblical data, uh, regardless of where on that spectrum one falls. Right. So, you, so you might say that you know uh, that one of these views might. Um, you, you could argue that it dovetails better with, say, conditionalism, mm. um, even though it might not be necessarily entailed by it. Um, would that would that be kind of an accurate way to to put it? I think that's a fair way of putting it. Sure. Um, you know, I, I I think that if if one understands death to be the kind of cessation of a, of you know conscious existence that I do, then it would make sense that at the second death it would be the same kind of thing. Whereas um, if one is a you know on the other end of the spectrum and is either a Cartesian dualist or a biblical holist or whatever, uh, then you've got to say that what happens at the first death is in certain respects anyway uh, different than or or or, or taken to an, a further extreme in the second death. And so there's arguably uh, a little bit of disconnection there that has to be explained in these views. So yes, you're right. There are some views that sort of, like you say, dovetail with conditionalism better. Sure. Okay. I, I, I think that, I think that's a good example. And, and, and I know we just wanted to brush over this um, rather quickly um, because from, from my observation of it, and I'm sure from your experience of it, a lot of the conversation gets bogged down on this point. Um, and a lot of the attacks that, that I've seen or, or criticisms, well, I mean, sometimes attacks, but criticisms um, of conditionalism and nihilism are, um, and, and we'll kind of get to some of the, the the harsher they get, but a lot of them get, get are really objections to, say, physicalism mm. uh, and, and its impact on the atonement, for example. And they'll use that as a wedge to argue against conditionalism but but that really only works either if the person holds to conditionalism and physicalism, mm. um, or if the person mistakenly thinks that that physicalism is is necessarily entailed by conditionalism. Yeah, and and you know in debates when people have gone this route of attacking physicalism or some sort of soul sleep, I don't mind discussing and arguing against their contention that conditionalism entails physicalism. I don't mind arguing against that. What I don't like arguing in a debate over conditionalism is the you know the, the biblical texts that would be used to challenge physicalism right, right? because because then it's not a debate about conditionalism it, it, what i would love to see happen is in a debate somebody say um here here are the logical reasons why one must become a physicalist if one is a conditionalist great that's perfectly on topic for a debate about conditionalism but when people instead say you can't you know lazarus and the rich man disproves physicalism well what does that have to do with conditionalism you know so i i agree with you it gets bogged down unnecessarily on that topic yeah yeah and, and i you know for those listening one of one of the points of this episode is to to give uh you know to give your view a fair a fair shake um and and one of the things that i always try to do is make sure that we're we're engaging a view even even like a you know no one no one has any has any uh, doubt that it's that is a view that I disagree with, but I want to make sure that I'm, in, I'm I'm engaging the strongest version of your view that I'm engaging you with it accurately. Um, to to otherwise, you know, to a degree, it's kind of like punching at hay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so be, before we go to more much further on this, what what are some who are some of the notable advocates? Who are some of the the scholars? You know, in the past. 50 years um, that, that anyone can go read some articles or, or, or some books that they've published. Yeah, so um, one thing people can do is if they go to rethinkinghellbooks.com, they can uh, they can check out 
you know, and purchase a copy of our first book, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, because what we do in that book is we collect a variety of uh, previously published articles and excerpts from previously published books and so forth from a variety of authors that have uh, that have um, embraced or, or at least tentatively uh, affirmed conditional immortality or annihilationism. Uh, and, we, and we put them all in one place because some of the books are, are easier to get their hands on, to get one's hands on than others. And I'm just looking at the table of contents at of that book, and, and we've got, uh, of course, Edward Fudge. Everybody that is in this debate knows who Edward Fudge is because he wrote uh, The Fire That Consumes back in, I think it was 82, and it's now in its third edition. Um, but you've also got British evangelicals Stephen Travis, John Stott, Canadian uh, theologian, past, late obviously, Clark Pinnock. You've got, uh, again, British theologian John Wenham. You've got Basil Atkinson, who spanned the centuries, the, the 19th and 20th centuries. E. Earl Ellis, who I believe was an American Southern Baptist. Um, or maybe I'm thinking of um, Dale uh, Dale Moody. He was a Southern Baptist American who was a conditionalist. Um, you've got Anthony Thistleton, very famous, I think, in apologetics yep. and philosophy yep. circles. Uh, Harold Giabod, uh, I don't know really much about him, but but he's one. Philip Edgecombe Hughes. Uh, back in the 19th century, you had people like Edward White and Henry Constable, Jacob Blaine, and a number of others. You've got an Australian or New Zealand, I'm not sure which, uh, philosopher, I think, named Christopher Marshall. You've got uh, Nigel Wright, who uh, W R I G H T, who I don't know a whole lot about, but I think he might be Anglican. Richard Swinburne, another philosopher that um, people would be familiar with, that uh, you know are fans of philosophy. He he is a conditionalist, um, you know, and, and I could list others. I, I've yeah. got a I'm working on a um, uh, a book proposal right now, and let me see if there are any other names. Well, okay, John Stackhouse, he's another one right now who's uh, big in apologetic circles. Preston Sprinkle, who uh, a number of years ago co-wrote Erasing Hell with Francis Chan. At the time, their book came out on the side of Eternal Torment, but since then, uh, Preston now leans heavily in the direction of conditional immortality. And and I could go on, but I think that's a pretty good sampling um, of conditionalists in the past couple hundred years. Yeah, and, and I and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to go through this too is to just point out some of the names that people would would recognize. I mean, when when you look at you know giants uh, of really evangelicalism uh, and and uh, really notable scholars, you, I mean, you have people like John Stott, um, which which you know I've talked to to people and they're like, wait, Stott was an annihilationist. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes, you, you know, and and he's a, he's a fantastic. <laughs> uh, fantastic resource for the church. Uh, people like John Wynnum, uh, just excellent, excellent New Testament scholars. Um, that, that Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham, yes. Uh, I mean, you you have some really, really just stellar, stellar scholars uh, that come down on on the uh, on you know on the quote unquote side of the angels, uh, but on the on really the conservative evangelical side um, on, on many many things. Um, that are just the, just it's, you know some of the tops in the field um, that that hold to this view, um, and so it's it's hard because, he, and, and this will come to my my next question. Um, you, you do have people that have only read um, quotes from those like Clark Pinnock, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and and Clark Pinnock has his, some of his own theological um, issues uh, in in other areas that has kind of. Um, put a question mark or an asterisk by his name when, when, when we're talking about uh, quality scholarship. Um, but when, but when, but when Clark spoke of, of annihilationism and, and some of the reasons why he held it, I don't think he did much favor to your side, 
right? Because, I don't think so either. <laughs> yeah, because because when he he talked when 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 he wrote about it, I mean, he he has some clear cogent arguments. And I'm not trying to say everything he wrote about it was you know uh, uh, emotional rants, but some of the some of the things that he wrote are just emotionally driven. Um, yeah, I mean they're just, they're just emotionally driven, right? And so it, it it leads itself, it lends itself to supporting that objection that I'm sure you get all the time, which is, look, you annihilationists, you conditionalists, you're you know you just want to get God off the hook for hell, right? Yeah. You you just have this emotional reason. You think you think it makes God a bully, right? It makes God a bad guy. And you're just trying to get God off the hook, and so you're denying what the Bible says. Yep. Right. Um, and Clark Pinnock says some things really along those lines. And, uh, and, and, you know, when, when people have an ax to grind and they find quotes from the other side that help support their, their narrative, they're going to, they're going to glom onto those. And I think some of, some of his quotes, because he is a notable scholar have found those, uh, found those, you know, helpful to their, to their narrative. So, so my question is, and we'll, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to some of your biblical case, but, but is this for the majority of people, let's just say at rethinking hell, right? Because, because you, you can't vouch for everyone that holds you, <laughs> sure. right? Uh, yeah. th- there are going to be people like Clark Pinnock who do have emotional reasons for holding it. But let, you know, let's just let's let's just talk about the people kind of in in your in your inner circle that you know of. I mean, is is that type of emotional appeal trying to get God off the hook because hell is such a you know such a dirty dirty mean doctrine? Um, is is that a motivating factor? Well, just to be clear, when you say rethinking hell, I, I'm assuming you mean the rethinking hell team and not the rethinking hell Facebook group. Correct. Because, yes. Yes, yeah, yes, okay, yes. because that's two thousand people strong, and and you know, I will say that it, it, it is, and you know where I'm coming from on this. You, you can anticipate kind of the answer that I'm going to be giving in a moment, but it, it disappoints me to see that be the sort of. Um, the the thing that conditionalists so frequently lead with is the what you know the perceived uh, emotional terribleness of of the doctrine of eternal torment or something like that because it does it, it feeds into exactly what you're saying. Right. In fact, as a side note, I I think Pinnock knew that his um uh, that his emotional language and his focus on the emotions was doing the conditionalist cause a disservice. Um, he in fact in in one of his um. Uh, in in the article that we've reproduced in that book, Rethinking Hell, that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, Clark Pinnock says that in admitting, um, you know, how how calm he can't be when he's discussing this topic because of how terrible he thinks eternal torment is, he says, in admitting this, I I I I know or I realize I'm playing into the hands of the critics when I admit how disturbed the doctrine of eternal torment makes me. Now, nonetheless, I will take the risk of beginning at the point of my outrage and hope that people will bear or will hear me and not put it down to send mentality. Well, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. Pinnock, but that is exactly what people are going to do when they see you lead with this, is they're going to uh, put what you're saying down to sentimentality because of the way that you start out. So it's, it's un- I think it's unfortunate when the community does that. Um, when it comes to the Rethinking Hell team, you know, the 12 or so of us that uh, do blogging and podcasting and, and stuff behind the scenes, I don't know any of the team who embraced conditionalism for primarily uh, emotional reasons. Um, it, emotional reasons didn't play a factor at all for me, uh, at least as far as I'm aware. In fact, the the emotions I were aware of uh, were pulling me toward the tradition because I knew as I was beginning to um, consider the, uh, the case for conditionalism, I knew that if I were to embrace it, ministry doors would close to me, schools I might want to teach at or even study at would close to me. 
uh, minis- you know, uh, churches. There are churches I wouldn't be able to teach at, churches I wouldn't even be able to be a member at. Um, and, and you know, look, I, I am a huge fan, a huge fan of James White, for example, and I'd had him on my podcast a couple of times. Um, and unfortunately, whatever sort of, you know, um, uh, blossoming friendship might have been beginning uh, at that point when I became a conditionalist. Um, it's totally gone as a result of this. So I, so I knew going into this that relationships, friendships, ministry opportunities, all these things would would dissolve. Um, and I desperately wanted to remain a traditionalist, but I couldn't. Um, when I became a Christian, uh, having been an atheist formerly, one of the two, one of the things that I knew. There were there were two things I knew that as a Christian I should believe, uh, having had no exposure to Christianity prior to it. Number one, I knew that the doctrine of eternal torment must be what the Bible teaches because it's what all Christians seem to believe. Uh, and the other thing that I knew is that the Bible's got to be my authority and it's and it's got to be true. And so I've committed to following it where wherever it is that I understand it to be leading, and that means. Um, you know, unfortunately, losing rela- friendships and relationships and so forth. So for me, it was all about exegesis, and the emotions actually pulled me in the direction of the tradition. Um, the, my understanding is that many of the people on the team have had a similar experience. Um, Glenn Peoples, for example, when I've talked to him about it, he was shocked to find out that there were Christians that held to this view back when he uh, was a believer in eternal torment. Um, and uh, his his emotions actually turned him away from this view as well because it you know it would have meant that so many people were wrong in church history or uh, you know people that he respected must have been wrong and he didn't want to believe that but he too was convinced by the exegesis uh, and I find that that's the case for um, you know somebody that's recently become a conditionalist a few years ago as a result of rethinking hell his name is Terence Thiessen he's uh, a published reformed author uh, for him as far as I know emotions didn't come into the equation it was all about exegesis. Now, there are some on the team that did begin um, to question the traditional view because of um, uh, because it didn't seem to them. They didn't intuit that it was that the doctrine of eternal torment is consistent with the nature and character of God um, or with the nature you know, or, or what it is that justice entails, that kind of thing. Um, but even those people who began to question the tradition because of emotions or because of philosophy or because of logic or what have you – in the the ones that I know of anyway, still um, let scripture be their authority, and they and they ended up embracing conditionalism because they became convinced that the Bible teaches it. Uh, if they had not become convinced of that, I'm not sure, um, you know, what what they would have done. I don't know if they would have just abandoned Christianity or just sort of sucked you know sucked it up and <laughs> said, okay, fine, I guess this is what I got to believe. I don't know. Right. Um, but but in the end, they were they they were convinced of exegesis, even though they started the journey because of emotions. And just one last thing I'll mention: there are some people who think that conditionalism is sort of a slippery slope to universalism, um, and I think that that is true when the reasons for becoming a conditionalist are primarily emotional and philosoph- philosophical and so forth. Um, if, if, if you just can't countenance the idea that a loving God would um, eternally torment people, then it might be hard to countenance that a God would annihilate somebody too, right? And so what's the only other option? Eventually he's going to save everybody, right? So I could see how if somebody converts to conditionalism for the wrong reasons, it could in fact be a slippery slope to universalism. But what I will say is that we have somebody on the team who is proof uh, proof that it's not a unidirectional slope. 
Um, Nick Quint, a member of the team who is a Pauline scholar, um, he actually was a universalist and became a conditionalist because of what the Bible, he was persuaded that the Bible teaches it. So I just want to say that for the sake of skeptics and, you know, critics that are listening, there are, it's not just conditionalists who become universalists. Sometimes universalists become conditionalists as well. What I'm not aware of. Um, are any? I'm not aware of anybody who has been either a conditionalist or a universalist for any period of time, and then become a traditionalist again. They might exist, um, but I'm not aware of them. Okay. Uh, well, well, you know, I'm I'm working hard to to reconvert your deconverts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck uh, with that. Thank you. Uh, uh, I, I think, and, and you know, again, I, I'd like to as accurately represent your view as I possibly can, and so. Um, in my understanding of it as well, I think um, it, it might have been a debate I heard from you. I, I don't think that I came up with this analogy. I, I think that I heard it from you. You can, or you can correct me if it was someone else and you got it from someone else. Um, but but the analogy is given that that really how you view either eternal conscious torment or uh, annihilation or conditionalism, um, however harsh you think it is a lot of it's going to come from some presuppositions that you bring about what justice is, mm. right? Because, because at some level, if we look at our own justice system, um, I mean, how many people are against capital punishment? They would rather right. someone sit in prison for the rest of their life rather than have capital punishment because capital punishment to them, the cessation of life is the harshest thing we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so the, you, you might have an analogy there where, you, in, depending on the, the presuppositions of justice that you bring in, it might be the case for that, that for some people, annihilationism actually is the more harsh view, um, whereas conditionalism is, is people, you know, they're, they're living with the reality of their choices and, and it's, it's, you know, God respecting what they chose and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if, that's, if, if that came from you or if that was... Well, it may have. Um, in you know, I've pointed out there are. Um, there's no doubt that many people, if not most today, think that the doctrine of eternal torment is harsher or more severe than annihilation. What um, what may surprise uh, many of many critics of conditionalism, conditionalism though, is that that hasn't always been the case. Right. Um, the first century Greek historian Plutarch. Uh, said that um, I'm trying to pull up the quote here. He said, uh, "Insensibility, dissolution, and the conceit that what hath no sense is nothing to us do not at all abate the fear of death, but rather help to confirm it. For this very thing is it that nature most dreads: the dissolution of the soul into what is without knowledge or sense." And, and Plutarch even said that Greeks would have preferred uh, eternal torment in Hades than uh, than annihilation. And and this is what shocked me when I discovered this recently. I didn't know this was the case until very recently. Even Augustine said this said that very thing. He said, "The very fact of existing is by some natural spell so pleasant that even the wretched are, for no other reason, unwilling to perish." Uh, Augustine said, if anyone should give the utter wretched an immortality in which their misery should be deathless and should offer the alternative that they might be annihilated and exist nowhere at all, on the instant they would joyfully, exultantly make election to exist always, even in such a condition, rather than not exist at all. Um, Now, I'm not trying to argue, as I'm sure you can tell, that Plutarch and Augustine are the majority report now. 
Um, but no, it is not the case that everybody universally, objectively fears eternal torment more than annihilation. For some, it's the other way around, as these quotes illustrate. Uh, uh, 20th century agnostic poet uh, Philip Larkin wrote a poem called Obad, where he talks about how terrifying the fear of annihilation um, was to him. Um, the fact is that, I mean, the, the whole Epicurean um, d- uh, goal of trying to convince people not to be afraid of death was that they were afraid of death. People are deathly afraid of it, even annihilation. So um, you're absolutely right. You may have heard it from me. Whether or not one is uh, going to seem like harsher or more severe or more terrifying than the other, it really is a subjective thing, and it's going to come down to what one person thinks is worse than the other. Yeah, yeah. when, when I was an atheist, I, I think that you know, just kind of looking back and trying to remember my view, I, I think that I probably would have thought equal, they're both kind of equally mm. terrifying. Uh, I yeah, mean, I, I don't know what's worse, being being alive and suffering, or just blinking out of existence. Um, so, so, but but there's also this this weird, and you know, I I would like to call my side to just better arguments, uh, anyways. Uh, but there's this weird emphasis of why does a view that's harsher, why does that make it better? Mm. Right? I mean, I mean, even even if even if eternal conscious torment was was uh, was harsher. Right. Does the fact that it's harsher make it – does that make it more biblical because it's harsher? Well, let me play the devil's advocate or, or let me let me play the traditionalist advocate. Yeah. Uh, if, if Christ uh, died on the cross in order to save us from some fate that is as – you know, that, that, that measures – 10 on the degree of how of harshness right and here some young upstart like me comes along i said well i'm not that young any longer but so some upstart comes along and says well no actually um he he died to save us from a something that's only an eight on the harshness uh, scale well the traditionalist might say logically what you're doing is you are devaluing uh, the work, the atoning work of christ and and i could see uh, a traditionalist thinking that that is um you know, to be anathema, right? If if you're if you're somehow saying that what Christ did on the cross is not as valuable as they thought it was, I, that could be seen as as pretty damning. Excuse the pun. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I get it, but there almost seems this like qualitative argument that 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 if if it's not as harsh, I I don't know, it just it, it it just it's a strange argument. It's almost like an an emotional argument in the reverse direction. Um. Uh, the, yeah, the, and, like, and if it's, like if it's not mean enough, uh, then then you guys are being too soft. Sure, sure. And I always wonder: are are traditionalists that raise this kind of objection actually um, so unimaginative that they can't imagine what they think you know awaits the wicked being in fact worse? Right. Because I can, you know, t- take any view of of uh, eternal conscious torment and add, you know add just a little bit more pain and now it's worse or a little bit more mental torment or whatever um and and it can definitely be worse imagine imagine it not yeah right exactly yeah so yeah so and and that was you had brought up um uh augustine and and some others so so is this is this um is this a new view uh within within the church history uh is is this um you know did 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 some 19th century guys uh you know sitting around smoking pipes and is this a you know uh, they, they they brought it up on the cuff because they're angry about hell. Or how how far back does this go? Well, so you have been active in the Rethinking Hell Facebook group, and as a result, I know that you are not 
as um, convinced as <laughs> somebody like I am yeah. uh, that that this is in fact an ancient view. And so I'll just tell you what I think, and, and you can certainly disagree because you're not persuaded yet. But but my research, you know, um, meager as it is, suggests to me that you had people prior to Augustine like Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome. Um, you had Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, Arnobius of Sicca. Arnobius of Sicca is, you know, everybody agrees he was a, as an annihilationist. Um, and they will often accuse him of other things as well, not being a very good uh, uh, exegete, being a bad philosopher or whatever. But the thing is, is he's recognized as a church father. So he had a following of Christians. And, and uh, you know, so, so it goes back at least to him. But like I said, I think you've got Irenaeus of Lyon and Ignatius of, Clem, uh, of Antioch and Clement of Rome as well. Um, what appears to me to be the case is that by the time, you know, uh, leading into the time of Augustine, all three major views of final punishment were well represented in the church and were not anathema, uh, anathematized. Um, Augustine sort of put his stamp of approval on the doctrine of eternal torment um, for whatever, you know, reasons we can discuss. And, and because I think he is justifiably so influential historically, you know, his view sort of became the orthodox view. And eventually the other two views um, were, were condemned to one degree or another. But prior to that point, as far as I can tell, you had representatives of all three views, and I, and I don't think that traditionalists are willing to acknowledge that um, readily enough. Even, even in the, uh, co- the Council of Constantinople, I think in the 5th or 6th century, uh, when, or- when Origen uh, was alleged to have been condemned, not only in that council was annihilationism not condemned, contrary to the claims of um, some of our critics, but also it's even questionable whether Origen's universalism was condemned. We've got an article at Rethinking Hell uh, done by my friend Graham Ware, who argues that the historical data is actually kind of questionable on whether or not Origen's universalism was condemned as heresy at that co- at that council. So it seems to me that you had in the early church something very similar to what you have right now when it comes to just about any intramural uh, Christian debate, whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm an all-millennial, but I'm great friends with pre-millennials and post-millennials, uh, post-millennialists. I'm a, I'm a partial preterist, but I'm great friends with futurists. I'm a Calvinist, but I'm great friends with Arminians and so on and so forth. And so far as I can tell, you had something like that in, you know, the early church leading up to the time of Augustine. Um, and I think that's something that should give us pause when we think about condemning one another as heretics right right um good so um what is so wh- one more question and then and then we'll well uh well two more questions and then i'll then then, the, then we'll dive in quickly to um you know allowing you to make the the why yeah, do you sure. think it's a biblical view um you had mentioned previously um soul sleep so we had, we had talked about how physicalism um you know some might argue um it entails or, or dovetails with with conditionalism but it's not entailed um soul sleep you had mentioned briefly this this i, I wanted to just kind of give this one its own little spotlight because i hear this one come up probably as much if not more than physicalism um and i and i think the association with some um uh, some questionable denominations and some downright heretical um, groups. I, I think the 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 overlap. There's almost a guilt by association with those two things. So, um, so what is? Uh, I know you had stated it briefly, um, but what is soul sleep? Um, and again, is it something that is necessitated by annihilationism or conditionalism? 
Well, when I hear soul sleep, I think any view which would say that the biblical language of of death as sleep, um, the reason why that analogy is given in Scripture is because death is unconsciousness like sleep is. Any view that would fall into that category, uh, I, I would lump under the umbrella of soul sleep. And so that would include uh, you know, various forms of physicalism or materialism or whatever you want to call it. Um, because, I mean, he, Glenn Peoples, for example, when he argues his case for physicalism, he will point out how frequently the Bible um, offers sleep as an analogy for death, and he thinks that that's because death is unconsciousness. Uh, so, so physicalists would fall under that, but there are Again, as far as I can tell, there are people who think that uh, human beings have both material bodies and immaterial souls. But when people die, these dualists say, uh, the soul uh, sleeps. You know, it, it, it is unconscious for whatever reason until it's reunited with the body at resurrection. And so this would fall under uh, the category of soul sleep as well. So for me, it's an umbrella term that can encompass quite a, a variety of views. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to me, as far as I can tell, my, my history is, is – um, you know, uh, there's a lot of learning I had to do when it comes to church history. But so far as I can tell, uh, Martin Luther even was, at least for a spell, some sort of believer in soul sleep. Um, you know, he he had very harsh negative things to say about the Roman Catholic doctrine of the immortality of the soul. And so far as I can tell, uh, Calvin wrote Psychopanachia in large part to, to get Martin Luther out of being a believer in soul sleep, which, as far as I can tell, worked. Um, Martin Luther, I don't think, remained uh, a believer in soul sleep. Um, so I don't know where I'm going with that. But the point, I guess the point is, is that it's, it's, it's a broad category that includes any, anybody who thinks, whether they're dualist or not, that human beings are unconscious in death. Those would all be believers in soul sleep. Now, is, does, it, uh, does conditionalism entail it? No, I don't think so. And um, the reason is because... If um, uh, one of the big proof texts, and by no means the only one or a primary one or anything like that, but one of the ones that is frequently brought up when somebody is offering a case for conditional immortality and annihilationism is Matthew ten twenty eight, and, and we'll get to this later. But he, you know, Jesus says there, "Don't fear man who can kill only the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna." If that. Um, I mean, it certainly seems on the surface to a lot of people, even to me, I'll admit, it seems to affirm some sort of body-soul dualism. But what does it say there? It seems to, it seems on the surface, as much as much on the surface as it seems to teach some sort of dualism, it also seems to teach some sort of conscious intermediate state followed by, a- after resurrection apparently, uh, annihilation. On the surface, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I mean, I will argue it when we get to that point. But at least on the surface, it seems to teach that. And so I don't see how one could think that conditionalism entails um, uh, entails physicalism or some sort of soul sleep when one of the texts that we so frequently cite seems very consistent with both, you know, some sort of conscious intermediate state in an immaterial disembodied state uh, and a final destruction of that soul with the body right. uh, on the final day. Okay. Now you, you've also been, um, you know, we we mentioned this a couple times. But you've been accused of, of heresy. Um, I'm guessing more than a handful of occasions. <laughs> uh, you, you, you've had your you've had your fair share. Um, now, without without going into you know what is heresy, what is heterodoxy, you know all that all that kind of stuff. Um, from 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 what I can tell, um, there, there, people there, people have different reasons for why they say it. Um, but the the two of the ones, and you you can correct me if there's there's other ones, um, but the two of the ones that I that I tend to find are. 
um, that your view um, undermines inerrancy um, to some degree, uh, or it undermines the atonement. Mm. Um, so hash hash those out for me a little bit. Why why do some of your critics say that your view would undermine inerrancy? Well, if you are convinced that um, you know Revelation fourteen nine to eleven, Revelation twenty ten, Matthew twenty five forty one to forty six, Mark nine forty three to forty eight, and Second Thessalonians one nine, if you think that all these texts clearly teach uh, some sort of eternal torment in hell, and somebody like me comes along and says, "No, that's not what they teach," well. Of course, you're going to think, well, arguably, you're going to think it undermines inerrancy uh, because you say, gosh, those texts clearly teach eternal torment. And if I'm willing to deny eternal torment, I must be willing to deny the accuracy of those texts. Um, But as you know, I actually think that those texts are better support for conditionalism. I I am a full-blown inerrantist, um, and I don't think there are any any errors in Scripture, at least in the autographa. And I think there are very few uh, meaningful errors that have crept in over the manuscript uh, process. uh, but no, I argue that those texts actually teach my view. So I don't see how somebody could, um, without begging the question, accuse me of heresy on the basis that, you know, on the grounds that conditionalism undermines inerrancy. I just don't see how one could make that argument. Yeah. One of the one of the things, because so so I hold, um, I admit I hold I hold to um, a heterodox view on on uh, on Genesis one. Um, it, it's it's not heretical, but I but I admit it, it's a heterodox view, right? I hold to the literary framework view of Genesis one. Mm. One of the criticisms that I get, and I, and I wonder if this is is what kind of underscores that that claim about inerrancy, um, is that if I if I don't read kind of the surface level, um, what they would consider the the literal reading, um, kind of this this uh, superficial on the face of it um, reading that I'm somehow undermining this kind of austere perspicuity, hmm. right? That, 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 that all, every single verse of the Bible needs to be as clear as every other verse of the Bible, right? Which, which isn't really what perspicuity is, right? Perspicuity right. is that the entire narrative of the scripture is clear, not that every passage is equally clear, right? But, but there's, this, there's almost this view that, it, that if you don't read it um, in this in this rather uh, wooden literal way, or or the way that they want you to read it, then you're then you're saying, well, the scriptures aren't aren't clear, um, and therefore you're saying that there that there's room for error to to, to come in, right? Um, and, and I'm wondering if if you if you've heard that type of line of reasoning because that that's one of the ones that I've heard um, against against my view on Genesis one. Well, I, I have, but only from, and I, I don't mean any disrespect by, the, by this, but only from the, the least informed, uh, most extremely fundamentalist Christians. Those are the only kinds I've heard this from. Because, I mean, look, even even take somebody that's as, um, uh, take Norm Geisler, for example. Right. Um, Norm Geisler is extremely critical of Mike Lycona because of um, some liberties that Mike Lycona takes of certain texts. And and I will admit that, you know, as of late, I, I, even I'm a bit of a critic of some of the things that Lycona has done. But I'm talking a few years ago when he was, you know, talking about the saints being raised in, in Jerusalem right. when Christ died, that kind of thing. Right. Norm Geisler was super um, opposed to Mike Lycona because he is a very, very, very rigid uh, inerrantist, but even somebody like Norm Geisler will tell you that one of the um, one of the important facets of the uh, grammatical historical method of exegesis is a recognition of genre. 
And the Book of Revelation is a, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's it's part of a genre that is named after the book, right? I mean, the the name of the book is is the Apocalypse historically, and that's the name of the genre it falls under is apocalyptic, right. and it deals with bizarre symbols, seven headed, ten horned beasts, and vampiric, blood drunk prostitutes riding on the beast, and so forth, a wo- woman clothed with the sun standing on the moon, or or, or vice versa. Um, you know, th- this is a this is a genre in which. Uh, the only way to apply the grammatical historical method of exegesis is to understand these symbols and look for the uh, literal meaning behind the text. And so I don't know how um, an informed, you know, uh, carefully thinking inerrantist could, could could accuse us of heresy on this, uh, you know, on these grounds. Right. But but I have but I have heard it from the less informed ones. Yes. Okay. What what about the atonement? Because one of the one of the claims is that your view um, your view undermines the atonement. How does how does that objection work out? Well, so um, Robert Peterson made this argument in uh, Two Views of Hell in his debate book with Edward Fudge, and, and basically the argument goes like this: If if a conditionalist thinks that the punishment of hell is annihilation, you know, total cessation of being, body and soul. And if uh, and if such a person believes in substitutionary atonement, as I do, I mean, I, I believe in penal substitutionary atonement, in fact, then that means that Jesus must have suffered the fate that his people deserved in their place. And so Jesus must have ceased to exist on the cross until he was raised three days later. Now, if you now, this isn't my view, by the way, but you know, this is this is the way the logic goes. If that's the case, then you have one of two options. You either say that the whole entire uh, second person of the Trinity ceased to exist, both human nature and divine. In which case, for three days, the Trinity, Trinity was rendered a binity. Uh, you know, and and so you you had a uh, partial godhead you know for three days until the until the second person of the trinity sort of poofed back into existence or something like that the other alternative according to this reasoning is that only his human nature ceased to exist and his divine uh, nature continued to uh, exist until it was reunited with his human nature once it popped back into existence um, and this of course would mean that there was a temporary breach in the hypostatic union between christ's human and divine natures which which is also uh, heretical it's a violation of chalcedonian christianity so according to this line of of reasoning this line of critical reasoning um a conditionalist who is willing to affirm substitutionary atonement um, has to commit him or herself to either a, br- a temporary breach in the hypostatic union or a temporary reduction of the Trinity into a binity. Or uh, such a conditionalist could just deny substitutionary atonement altogether, in which case um, there's heresy for a different reason. So you can see that, um, uh, you know, and, and if you want, I can tell you my answer to it, but but that's that's what the, the Christological reason why a lot of people think that conditionalism is heresy. And I would say it's the only... Um, it's the only objection it's the only claim to to heresy that i think comes even close to sticking um i don't think it sticks if one holds conditionalism rightly uh, as i think that i do um but that is the most common objection okay well well why don't we get to uh, we'll, we'll circle back to this at the very end right because i i think your answer is going to rely on a presentation of your view Right. So so why don't why don't you um, as as you know, briefly as you can, um, (laughs) (laughs) we've we've taken up, uh, you know, about about 45 minutes on 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 other on other issues. But why don't you um, spend some time just giving the biblical case for it? 
right? Sure. So there, there's some there's some different categories of verses, right? So so um, why why is it that you think that annihilationism or conditionalism is the biblical view? I will answer that, but before I forget, there, there is one third. I just realized, just remembered, there is one third claim uh, that this is a Matt Slick's argument against conditionalism, or at least one of them, uh, his, his reasons for thinking it's heresy. If one thinks, as some conditionalists claim to, that in hell the the wicked are punished with torment, and then once they've paid their penalty, then they cease to exist, uh, then according to Matt Slick, that's a, a sort of salvation by works, because you're sort of working off your debt by tor- by being tormented, and once you've paid that debt off, then you're saved from further punishment by being annihilated. Um, now, again, I don't think this is a, a good argument, but but those that's the third uh, category of of claims to heresy. Okay, um, so here is my case, and and there are a variety of different ways that uh, conditionalists might make his or her case, but uh, here's mine. I think there are four really good categories of texts, like say. Um, which should lead any evangelical who's committed to the authority of Scripture to embrace conditionalism. Firstly, uh, according to Scripture, so far as I can tell anyway, um, human beings have been mortal ever since the fall. So we could talk about whether Adam and Eve were immortal when they were created or whether they were mortal but just sort of sustained by the tree. But either way, when, according to Genesis 3, they are evicted from the garden, uh, it is explicitly so that they can't take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, that's according to verses 22 and 23. So by by revoking Adam, Adam and Eve's access to the tree of life, God ensured their eventual demise, um, which means that human beings are uh, mortal by default or, or sort of naturally. Um, that tree of life reappears in, in the end of Revelation, but access to it is only given to the saved, to the inhabitants of New Jerusalem. Now, I don't take Revelation to be a, a literal depiction of the afterlife or, you know, of, of the eternal state, but it seems to me pretty clearly that what that tree of life's presence in the New Jerusalem is supposed to symbolize is that the saved will have immortality, uh, but the lost will not. Um, and so you have, you know, John five twenty nine, in which Jesus says that everybody will be resurrected, but not everybody will be resurrected to a resurrection of life. You have Jesus saying in Luke twenty that um, only those covered by His blood, He says, only the only those who are deemed worthy of the resurrection will be unable to die anymore. Um, it's seemingly implying that those who are not worthy of the resurrection will be able to die. Um, Paul says in, in what I call his resurrection magnum opus in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verses 50 and 53 that, uh, that immortality is put on by believers so that they can be made fit to inherit the kingdom of God. So, so for, and, and this is just a sampling of the biblical language that could be um, leveraged in support of this argument that according to Scripture, human beings are mortal unless they are gifted with immortality, and the Bible only ever says that the saved will receive immortality. And it explicitly, or it comes very close, I think, to explicitly saying that immortality is not something that will um, be given to the lost. So that's sort of the first category. Do you, wanna, do you want yeah. me to move on, or do you have any clarifying questions? Yeah, so I, I have a question. So um, with, without going into, like, soul sleep and stuff, do you, do you think that um, on your view at, at the second coming that the, the lost are, um, are physically resurrected? Um, I I don't think the Bible knows anything of a resurrection other than physical resurrection. I think that's what resurrection is, is physically coming back to life. And yes, I do think the lost will come physically back to life. But they'll, but they'll come back not in glorified bodies. They'll come back in 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 bodies like we have like we have now or 
well, mortal at the very least. I mean, I don't see any reason to to think that they are anything other than the mortal bodies that we have now, because the only times the Bible talks about the bodies of bodies being transformed is when it comes to the saved. Okay. So that's the first category. Anything else before you before I move on? Uh, no, I just wanted some clarification on sure. your view of what happens at the resurrection. Sure. Okay, so the second category of texts I think should lead any evangelical committed to the authority of Scripture to be a conditionalist are those texts that indicate that Jesus died in place of his people. Um, so whether somebody's willing to affirm penal substitutionary atonement like I do, or just you know substitutionary atonement, which I think is uh, sort of um, essential to just about any mainstream view of the atonement, you know, whether you're talking Christus Victor or, or whatever, you're still dealing with substitution. It's just not penal substitution. Uh, so, the, but, but the whole, th- the th- point is, is that substitution means that Christ bore something in place of, or instead of those people who deserved it. That's what substitution is. When, um, when, when God told the Israelites to, to, uh, spread blood on their doorpost, hyssop or whatever, so that, uh, the angel of death would pass over their houses, um the uh the they were also told to slay a lamb and the lamb was the substitute for their firstborn children and that's why and it was the lamb's blood that had to be put on the doorposts and and look i mean i'm i'm not saying anything controversial here this is standard ordinary evangelical substitutionary uh, atonement theory is that um the old testament sacrifices pointed forward to the substitutionary death of christ so uh, now, now, according to Scripture, what Jesus suffered, what, what he bore as our substitute, was death. Um, you know, Paul calls it the gospel in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He says it's of first importance that Christ died, was buried, and was raised three days later. He says in Romans 5, 6 that Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, if there were any question that, that we're talking about death as ordinarily understood, you've got people like Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 saying put to death in the flesh. And you've got Hebrews 10.10 saying that it was in the body of Jesus that, that, um, that his death uh, atoned for sin. So if by dying, if by giving up his life, Jesus substituted in the place of his people, then what they deserved and which he took in their place was death, as ordinarily understood. But if that's what his people deserved and which he stood in their place and bore on their behalf, then those for whom he didn't uh, substitute, if you're a Calvinist like me, or if one is an Arminian and thinks that he died for everybody, but but the fruit of his atoning work is only sort of uh, extended to the people that actually accept it in faith, either way, if what his people deserved and which he bore in their place was death, then logically it follows, I think, that the fate finally awaiting the lost must be death as well. But I can think of no uh, greater opposite to death than immortal everlasting life, albeit in torment, and that's what the traditional view claims. And so you've got this weird sort of disconnect, so far as I can tell, between um, uh, what Jesus is alleged to have done in our place and what it is that we are alleged to have deserved. Um, I, I remember at an apologetics conference a number of years ago, I was listening to William Lane Craig uh, when he was uh, fielding a question on the doctrine of hell. And he said something really interesting. He said, Jesus bore the death penalty in our place so that we won't have to. Well, wait a minute, William. Uh, you know, Dr. Craig, you don't think that the wicked in hell will face the death penalty. So Jesus did not bear that in, there, in our place. He bore, uh, he, he bore some generic, vague wrath of God in our place, but it wasn't death he bore in our place. But we conditionalists would argue that the scripture is really clear 
that what Jesus bore as a substitute in his atoning work on our behalf and in our place was death. Um, and that's what we believe the second death is. It's actually dying and never living again, whereas the traditionalist says the wicked in hell will live forever. So that's the second category. Anything there that you want to ask about? Um, just, for, just for clarification, um, because I know this, this is a common objection that, that, that comes up, is um, how, how is it on your view that, that Jesus bore the death penalty, right? Because if the death penalty is death, right, everlasting death, um, how, how is it that that can be worked out that Jesus bore our, our death um, and yet only died for three days, right? It was a, it was a temporary condition rather than uh, an annihilation. Well, before I answer that question, let me ask you this. How is it that Jesus bore a few hours of suffering, but that somehow substitutes for the eternity of uh, suffering that would have otherwise awaited his people? Yeah, yeah so, well, without with, – <laughs> Without trying to answer a, a two quake, um, <laughs> because it doesn't it doesn't really matter what my view is if you're for your view to be sure. true, or, true or false. Well, let but, me let me put it differently. How do you think traditionalists typically answer that question? Yeah, I'm not try, I'm not trying to dodge, but I know the the, bur, the burden of proof here is is on. Well, and, okay. and, and me, we're, not, we're not debating you. it. So I, I'm I'm trying to understand understand your view because I know because no, no, I, no, I actually I, I, so one of the one of the things that I'm going to ca- one of the things that that I'll caveat when we talk about it is I don't think that this is a problem for either of us because I think both parties are going to have to appeal to some type of qualitative distinction rather than some type of one to one quantitative distinction. Um, but that that that's how both sides are going to have to get around this. Hurt. This this is a problem for both sides. Okay, well, let me just answer my own question then, and then I'll answer yours. Sure. The way that traditionalists typically answer the question that I just asked, which was how did the few hours of Jesus' suffering uh, qualify you know, or, or substitute for the eternity of suffering that would have otherwise awaited his people, the way that they answer that is by the hypostatic union, by, being, by having a divine nature— Jesus' Jesus' few hours of suffering was qualitatively equivalent in some way to the eternity of suffering that would have awaited his people. Okay. Now I'm I'm not I have something to say about that line of reasoning that we can get to next time we record if we like. The reason I point that out is just to say that what's good for the you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I can simply say that as the as the God man being of both human and divine natures, a temporary death was the equivalent of an eternal death. And I've all I've done is offer the exact same uh, account for, um, for how a temporary punishment that he bore could be the equivalent of the eternal punishment awaiting the wicked. Now, um, what I would argue, though, is that my, the, my answer to the question actually comports with the biblical data because the Bible does not emphasize that Jesus suffered for a few hours in place of his people. It emphasizes that he died for them in their place. And so at least my view, although no, you know, able to answer the question just as well as they do, at least my view uh, lines up with what Scripture says he did on our behalf. Right. Well, I, I, I disagree, but, it's, <laughs> but, but, but really, I mean, we, we, I think we're going to answer the, the my, my point was that we, we largely answered the same way. We're both going to have to appeal to some type of qualitative um, aspect to it. Um, but I, I just wanted to get clarification on, on what your actual position would be and answer would be. 
that's yeah that's my answer to the question um my more learned more uh intelligent more uh eloquent conditionalists will probably give a better answer to that question than i do i just like to go for the easy answer and since my answer is no worse than the traditionalist answer that i offered uh, i'm willing to go with it but what they would say is something like uh jesus was victorious over death because he didn't die for his own sins. He died for everybody else's, uh, and 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 so therefore death couldn't hold him. He you know he he um he, he broke free from it. Something like that because because he was the the perfect sinless Lamb of God. Unlike people who die uh, because of their own sins, um, I am not yet persuaded that that answer is uh, without any holes, and that's why it's not my prefer- my preferred answer. I'd prefer to go with the answer that is the same answer that traditionalists give just better just more in line with scripture so <laughs> yeah you know I, I i agree with you because i i think i am I'm, I'm far more compelled to say look we we, you know, we both give qualitative answers on both sides let's you know shake hands and move on from that from that objection for for both sides um and, and i found that that the objection that you said that your 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 fellow conditionalist gives my my main problem is it's like saying well um, basically, Jesus paid the debt, but he's such he, he made such a good payment that he didn't actually have to pay the debt. Um, yeah, I know it, it doesn't. It doesn't. I know that yeah. that's exactly kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. But but here, but I, I just want to reiterate before we move on. I and, and you're right. We do disagree on this, and we can talk about it next recording. But I do think that this is an argument that is uh, that favors conditionalism because although the traditionalists that I described give the same kind of answer I do as to why a temporary experience on the part of Jesus qualifies as the uh, eternal faith awaits the, wick, the wicked and would have otherwise awaited his people, although we offer that same answer. My view still has Jesus bearing the penalty that the final uh, that finally awaits the loss, namely death, and the penalty that uh, that the Bible says he bore in our place. I don't think the traditionalists can say the same thing, and that's why I still think that this is a good argument for conditionalism. But I understand you don't agree, and, and we can yeah. certainly talk about that next yeah. time. Because because shot across the bow, um, the, for for me the 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 problem with that is going to be well, it, it assumes your exegesis of of death. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, it's starting on a position that we just wouldn't even agree on the starting point uh, and, and move from there. So. Well, I'm, that intrigues me. That, so when you when you when Paul says in Romans 5, 6, for example, that Christ died for the ungodly, what do you think that Paul meant there? Chris, we got to save something for the next. All show. right. OK. OK. Sounds good. <laughs> totally All good. right. We, we, we have we have a whole nother show or, or possibly two to, <laughs> to, to fill. Let's not, let's we not we, could, we could probably do many more than that, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to stick to just a couple. Probably. Okay. So, so, so we have uh, so following the, the substitutionary death of Jesus. Um, right. what, what's what's the third category of verses? So the third category of verses is is what most conditionalists sort of lean on because they are so frequent and prevalent and consistent and repeated in Scripture, and that's the biblical language of death and destruction uh, awaiting the finally lost. So you've got, for example, the most famous in the Bible, John three sixteen, that God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is immediately after uh, Jesus already or John, uh, sorry, uh, John, not Jesus. I don't I don't think it's Jesus talking in John three sixteen, um, but but it immediately follows verses fourteen and. 15, where uh, where the kind of death that's in view is made clear, because the analogy of Jesus that is offered is uh, the the serpent that Moses held up that if people you know touched or looked at they would be uh, they wouldn't die from being bitten by poisonous snakes uh, sorry ven- venomous snakes so the what it means to perish there has already been contextually defined it means to bodily die. Um, and and John three sixteen appears to say that 
that those who believe in him will not perish, the implication being uh, that those who do not believe in him will perish. You've got Paul saying, saying in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, just a couple of chapters, or, or just a chapter earlier, saying death reigned from Adam to Moses uh, when there was no law. And most you know conservative evangelical commentators that I know would say that uh, what it means that, that death reigned from Adam to Moses is that people physically died even though there was no law because people sinned in Adam. It's standard original sin type argumentation. Um, and so, uh, and in that context, Paul talks about that death from Adam to, uh, from Adam to Moses being the wages of sin, but the free gift of life uh, being available through Christ. And that's the same thing that you see in Romans 6.23. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you've got uh, physical death again being what is promised for those who must be paid the wages of sin uh, because they aren't covered by the blood of Christ. You've got Jesus, we mentioned this a moment ago, Jesus saying in Matthew 10, 28, that we're to fear God who can destroy both body and soul in in Gehenna. The Greek word destroy there, apollomy, everywhere in the synoptic gospels, uh, or at least just about everywhere, where there's no dispute, let's just put it that way, uh, where that word is used in the active voice uh, is what Greek grammarians describe it as. When it's used transitively to, to describe what one personal agent does to another, it consistently means something like slay or kill. Um, you've got, just as one example among many, you've got the Pharisees trying to apollomy Jesus, or, and you've got Herod trying to apollomy the baby Jesus. Uh, the baby Jesus. Uh, so two examples, not one. Um, and there... The, the, the Pharisees weren't trying to ruin or lose Jesus, and Herod was not trying to separate uh, the, the baby Jesus. They were trying to slay him. They were trying to kill him. Um, and that, so I think that that's what Jesus is saying God will do to both body and soul in Gehenna in Matthew 10, 28. You've got Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, that the narrow and difficult path leads to life, while the wide and easy path leads to destruction. Uh, in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, 30, the tares are thrown into a furnace of fire and burned up, the Greek katakaio, meaning to burn completely, being reduced to ashes. And when he interprets that parable a few verses later in verses 40 to 42, he says that so too will the wicked be thrown into a fiery furnace, alluding to Malachi 4, 1 to 3, which promises that the wicked will be reduced by fire to ashes beneath the feet of the righteous. You've got Peter saying that when uh, that, that when God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by turning them to ashes, he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Um, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah were incinerated, and so therefore the ungodly will not live forever in ruin. They will be utterly destroyed. So this is just, again, a very small sampling of a great wide stream of, of biblical data from cover to cover, which speak of the final fate of the lost as death and destruction, as those terms are ordinarily understood, not in some sort of code language like I think traditionalists tend to have to, um, uh, to, have, to, to, have to explain them away as. So that's the third category of texts are these, these texts that promise death and destruction for the wicked. Okay. Uh, I, I, don't, I think that's sufficiently clear. Okay. Uh, and then finally, uh, and I'll leave you with this, and then we'll um, uh, field any other questions. I'm happy, I'm happy to field any others you have. The last category of texts are those texts which historically have been cited by traditionalists in support of eternal torment. And this is actually what convinced me of conditionalism and convinces me of conditionalism more than just about anything else, is that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in support of the doctrine of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for conditional immortality. And so, for example, you've got Mark 9.48, where Jesus says that in, uh, in Gehenna, the, the fire will not be quenched and the worm will not die. Uh, and a lot of people... 
in a, in a bizarre turn of language, suddenly change what quench means to mean die out when everybody uses quench to mean put out under ordinary circumstances. And indeed, what Paul is, or sorry, what Jesus is doing in Mark nine forty eight is quoting Isaiah sixty six twenty four, which likewise speaks of unquenchable fire and undying worms. But these this fire and these worms are are explicitly said by Isaiah to be consuming corpses. Um, and everywhere, everywhere else in Scripture where this unquenchable fire is used in the context of God's wrath, it means it's inextinguishable. It can be put out, and because it can't be put out, it will do whatever a fire does that can't be put out, namely reduced to ashes. So you've got examples of this in places like Ezekiel 20, 47 to 48, and Amos 5, 6, and others. And then when it comes to scavengers like maggots that can't be stopped from doing what they're doing, you got like Jeremiah 7.33, I think it is, where uh, where scavenging beasts and birds won't be frightened away from the corpses upon which they're feeding, which means that they will not be stopped from fully consuming them. And that's the same thing that you have in Isaiah 66.24. So this Mark 9.48, Isaiah 66.24 pair of passages historically used to support the doctrine of eternal torment actually is better support for conditional immortality. And you've got Daniel 12, too, which is, says that some will rise to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. A lot of, again, this is historically used, cited in support of uh, eternal torment, but actually only the righteous are there said to, ri- to be raised to everlasting life. Um, the lost, the only thing that they are raised to, etern- to eternal something of is contempt. And that word doesn't have to do with the experience of, this, of the lost. Uh, the word describes how the lost are perceived or are remembered by those who remain. Uh, it's the only other place in the Bible where that Hebrew word is used in, is Isaiah 66:24, where it describes this these corpses being consumed by fire and maggots, describes them as a, as an abhorrence or as contemptuous or contemptible, whatever the right word is, uh, to the righteous. You've got the same thing there in Daniel 12:2. And it's the same promise that you have in Matthew twenty five forty six, where the righteous are said to go into eternal life. So the eternal punishment awaiting the lost must not also be eternal life, or else it wouldn't make any sense at all. Uh, the, the kind of eternal punishment that isn't eternal life is eternal death. It's capital punishment. Uh, and that goes back to verse 41, where he talks about eternal fire, a phrase that he used earlier in Matthew 18, 8, and 9, in parallel uh, with Gehenna, which is the Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which God promised would become the Valley of Slaughter. Uh, Jeremiah 7, where, like I said, scavenging beasts and birds won't be frightened away from carrion. Um, And eternal fire is also a phrase that Jude uses to describe that fire that uh, Peter also described, uh, the fire down from heaven and destroyed the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not fire that keeps people alive forever in torment, it's fire that completely destroys. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, there's a combination of terms right at the beginning of verse 9 or at the end of verse 8, depending upon your translation, inflaming fire and, 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 and inflicting vengeance. The only place in the Bible where this terminology appears together is in Isaiah 66, 15, which, is a, as we've already discussed, is a scene which uh, has which depicts God's enemies being slain and their corpses being consumed by fire and maggots. And that's what he had in mind when he talks about the penalty of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. Um, I'm sure we'll probably talk next uh, next recording about some bizarre translations that talk about separation from, from the Lord and stuff like that. But it literally says dis- eternal destruction from the faith of the Lord, kind of like being blown from the water. Um, and the background is in Isaiah 66, where, like I said, God's enemies are slain. Um, you've got uh, Revelation 14, 9 to 11, 
where smoke of the rest, smoke of the torment rises from be, restless beast worshippers forever and ever. Um, but all throughout Scripture, smoke rising forever is a symbol of. It's kind of like what we think of when we see a mushroom cloud. It's a symbol of complete destruction. And even if one thought that I was doing something illegitimate by looking at the the sources from which this imagery comes, which I don't think could be argued to be illegitimate, but you know when you want to argue against a view, you'll latch onto anything you you can. If you're not willing to do that, and I, obviously I don't mean you. I mean the proverbial you. Um, in Revelation uh, 18 and 19, we see the same thing happening with the with the mystery Babylon, the harlot that's fighting that seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Three times in chapter 18, she is described as being tormented by fire, and at the beginning of chapter 19, a, cro- a chorus cries out, Hallelujah, smoke rises from her forever and ever. But at the end of chapter 18, an angel interprets this imagery of this harlot being tormented by fire, interprets it for John. And tells him that it means the city that she represents will be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. This this smoke rising forever from fiery torment is symbolism communicating destruction. It's not it's not everlasting torment. And then finally in Revelation 20:10, there's so much that could be said about this this passage. But what I will say for this for for now, and then we could discuss it more next time, is that all throughout Scripture, when uh, when divine um, heavenly visions are interpreted in scripture for the people who have those visions the interpretation always takes something that is bizarre and perplexing and difficult to understand in the imagery and tells you what it means in plain language and so for example when joseph is interpreting the dreams of pharaoh pharaoh's dream in pharaoh's dream seven healthy cows come out of the nile and then seven sickly cows come up out of the nile and and eat up the the seven healthy cows and joseph says the seven cows are seven years so he's taken this, and, and there are a host of examples uh, with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the angel and Daniel and Daniel 7, and on and on I could go. Joseph and the cupbearer, Joseph and the baker. Whenever these bizarre symbols and dreams are interpreted, the interpretation is always delivered in plain, straightforward language. And what you have in, jo- in Revelation 20, verse 14, and Revelation 21, verse 8, is John in the first place and God in the second place interpreting the lake of fire as the second death. Traditionalists, what they have historically done is they've turned that dynamic on its head. They've said that the second death means torment in the lake of fire. But that's exactly the opposite of this dynamic works between the imagery in a, in a vision and its interpretation. The second death tells you what the symbol of, a, of, a, of the lake of fire means in reality. It's not the other way around. And we conditionalists are the one who believe, ones who believe that the resurrected lost will actually die a second time. Uh, the, the traditionalists don't. Um, so we're the ones who are actually taking John's and God's interpretation of the lake of fire as authoritative. I think the traditionalists are are unable to do that. So those are just some of the texts. Actually, it's just about all the texts that traditionalists historically cite in support of eternal torment. Um, and what I found, what I find when I look at every single one of them. Uh, is that they are better support for conditional immortality and annihilationism, and I've yet to be given any reason to think otherwise. So when I look at that first category of text that promise immortality only for the saved, and when I look at the second category of text which says that Jesus died in place of sinners, and when I look at the third category of texts that the fate promised the finally wicked is death and destruction, and when I look at the texts that historically have been the strongest ones in support of eternal torment, and I find that actually they're far stronger support for conditional immortality and annihilationism, as somebody who is committed to the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, I can go nowhere else. I have to follow the Scripture where it leads, and there isn't there isn't a shred, so far as I can tell, in support of uh, eternal torment anywhere in the pages of, of Scripture. And so that's that's my case uh, in a nutshell. 
But that's such an emotional argument. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that was that, I, that was that was a good um, layout of the uh, of your view, and it'll give me um, a lot to, to prep for for our next dialogue uh, to kind of pepper you with uh, some questions about it. So. I look forward to it very much. Absolutely. I just want to say, um, and, and not to toot your own horn or to blow smoke up your rear end or anything, but, but seriously, I, you're, you're, um, you know, you disagree strongly with me, but you are um, so respectful and so friendly, and and it's such a, a breath of fresh air. And I just want to thank you for it. You know, um, there's talk going around in in certain circles that I'm um, afraid of dealing with certain people because their arguments are too strong. Um, I am willing to have these kinds of conversations with anybody who'll have them with the kind of respect and friend, you know, friendliness, uh, and 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 um, uh, kindness that you're showing me. And I just want to thank you so much for that. It means an awful lot, and and it's been a real pleasure being on here. And I look forward to being grilled by you next time. <laughs> well, uh, I will I will grill you, but hopefully not for eternity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hope not. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me this time. I think it was a, a helpful presentation of your view to, to give um, at least listeners and, and those who you share with a, a, a nice um, uh, summary view of it. And the next time um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pepper you some questions, kind of get some of your answers to some of, some of the objections and some of your, some, some of your thoughts. I'm, I'm, I'm under no delusion that, uh, that either of us is probably going to convince the other one. Um, but, it, but it, hopefully it will be a robust enough conversation to give both of us uh, some more to, to chew on. So, yeah. And maybe I can just leave your listeners with this. I, you know, it might surprise your listeners to find out that when I go into discussions like this with you, Tyler, I, I'm not really trying to change their minds about the nature of hell um what i'm my biggest goal in in doing what i do including these kinds of conversations is just to show people that we are every or at least some of us conditionalists are every bit as serious about the authority uh and clarity and and meaning of the word of god as they are we're not we're not heretics we're not just you know liberals or modernists or or whatever um we take it very seriously and if if there were not uh, churches that refused to open their doors to conditionalists, if there were not schools that refused to hire teachers who are conditionalists, if there were not ministries that required people to resign when they become conditionalists, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, I want to see that change. I don't think that that um, vision in in the people of God um, is something that God is happy about. And I think that it stymies the church's mission when instead of standing arm in arm, you know, on the on the battlefield of ideas, uh, going toe to toe against uh, you know the, the various worldviews that the church has to um, you know encounter out there in the marketplace of ideas, if we can't if we're not standing arm in arm doing that together, because instead we're we're chewing each other out on a non essential like this, I, I think that we are um, I think that we're failing to do what it is that we're supposed to be doing in this world. Not to mention. Um, we are not treating each other as others as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even if after the, this two-part or three-part or four-part conversation you and I have, you haven't changed your mind on hell, and I haven't changed my mind on hell, I still think it'll be extremely fruitful if even a few listeners that listen to this will say, okay, I'm, I'm not – you know, I, I'm no longer unwilling to fellowship with or minister with conditionalists anymore, as long as they, uh, as long as their reasons for holding to conditionalism are Chris's, you know, or something like it, uh, as opposed to, for example, Clark Pinnock, something like him. So. Right. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll get something on the book for uh, part two coming up soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Right. Thanks, Chris. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or 
condemnations, even eternal ones, feel free to email us at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or stop on by Facebook and visit the Freed Thinker Podcast Facebook group page. Uh, this was part one of my discussion with Chris Date, so uh, please sign in for uh, and subscribe to the podcast uh, for other content like this and the continuation of this series. Thank you all very much for joining us. Good night and God bless.